Hello, Salam, Diagwes, and welcome to the History of Modern Iran podcast, Episode 7, The Fall of Amir Kabir. On our last episode, we saw how Mirza Taki Khan, now known by his new title of Amir Kabir, successfully managed to crush opposition to the new Shah Nasr al-Din, most notably the Salah revolt and the Babi uprisings. In his brief period of rule between 1848 and 1851, Amir Kabir embarked on a series of ambitious reforms that sought to turn the dysfunctional and weakened kingdom inherited by Nasr al-Din Shah into a state that could maintain its sovereignty in the face of British and Russian imperialism. Kabir was a reformer, not a radical. As John Lorenz writes, the Premier's fundamental aim was, quote, to increase the effectiveness of centralised political control and, thereby, to strengthen the traditional state, end quote. Achieving this fundamentally conservative goal, though, would be no mean feat. Almost as soon as he entered office, Kabir was faced with the military crises in Khorasan, Sheikh Tabarsi and Zanjan. Wars, of course, mean money, and, unfortunately for Amir Kabir, there wasn't any. When Kabir and the Shah arrived in Tehran, they immediately discovered a one million Toman hole in the state coffers. Luckily, Amir Kabir was, at heart, a diligent accountant. To address the immediate financial crisis, he took the unprecedented step of cancelling a whole host of stipends and pensions which were paid to nobles and courtiers who did no real work, while dramatically reducing the wages of civil servants across the board. Not even the Shah himself was immune from the Premier's austerity, and he had to get by on a quarter of the royal stipend that had been received by his father. Kabir's agents also demanded, and, in an unusual turn of events, actually recovered long overdue taxes owed by the provinces. The new Premier also formalised the state's tax collection machinery by transferring the collection of customs duties from individual tax farmers to the central administration, rationalising this important source of revenue, reducing money lost to corruption and ensuring that customs reached Tehran regularly and reliably. Similarly, there were reforms in land taxes. Before Amir Kabir, land had been taxed based on area, meaning that 50 acres of arid desert in Kerman would yield the same tax receipts as 50 acres of productive rice fields in Mazandaran. Under the new reforms, taxes were instead assessed based on productivity, meaning that fertile areas paid more. Villages and estates that could not or would not supply tax money had to offer up men for military service instead, both of which the vizier gladly accepted. Kabir was almost unique among Gajar-era statesmen in not being outrageously corrupt, standards which he opposed on the reluctant and venal bureaucratic elite, even the Shah's closest relatives. Kabir's high standards improved the administration, but also further alienated the Gajar elite, already ill-disposed to Kabir for being, in their view, a commoner and a tyrant, 
who had usurped far too many of their traditional rights and responsibilities. Kabir had first risen to power as an army administrator and the military was the centrepiece of his reforms. He took several steps to put the army on a sound footing. First, the army's finances were regularised and the iron discipline that Kabir had applied to his own soldiers in Azerbaijan was extended to the whole of the Persian armed forces. For the first time, many Persian soldiers were actually paid on time. They were also forbidden from arbitrarily seizing supplies from the local population. Indeed, foreign observers praised the conduct of government troops fighting the Salar Revolt in Khorasan, noting the absence of looting or pillaging. In addition, foundries and armaments factories were founded across the country, while old fortresses were repaired and new ones established, improving the country's decrepit military infrastructure. These measures, alongside a rationalised system of conscription, increased the size of the army and made it at least modestly effective within the borders of Iran. The most lasting of Kabir's military initiatives was the founding of the Dar al-Fanun. The Dar al-Fanun translates to English as Polytechnic College and was Iran's first modern educational institution, the forerunner of the University of Tehran. The Dar al-Fanun's primary function was to strengthen the army, in particular to improve the notoriously ineffective officer corps. In fact, the campus was built on land previously used for drilling. Of the Dar al-Fanun's freshman class of 105 students, 30 were engaged as infantry scholars, 5 as cavalry, 26 in artillery training and 12 in engineering. The remainder were engaged in the study of medicine, pharmacy and mining. Despite the curriculum's core focus on the military sciences, the academy's scope quickly broadened. Artillery instructors, for example, who found classes without sufficient knowledge of geometry were quickly forced to teach basic mathematics. Similarly, the need for students to access foreign textbooks and military manuals necessitated the teaching of European languages, especially French, and spurred the translation of European books into Persian. The early translations were mostly military material, but as more instructors became fluent in Persian, and as more students and teaching assistants mastered European tongues, the translations extended to works of fiction, like The Count of Monte Cristo and Gulliver's Travels, extending the reach of European ideas into Iranian society. Medicine too was an important aspect of the Dar al-Fanun. Modern armies, after all, needed effective medics and surgeons. Over time, the medical college at the Polytechnic was expanded and spurred the modernization of medicine and public health in Iran. Amir Kabir, sadly, did not live to see the fruits of his labor, falling from power just before the first European instructors took up their posts in the academy. The Dar al-Fanun was, however, the most significant of the vizier's initiatives and one of the few which survived his death. In foreign relations, Kabir abandoned the policy of his predecessors, which was, essentially, to lurch wildly from the orbit of Britain to Russia and then back again, as circumstances dictated. Kabir instead tried to maintain a delicate neutrality, 
neither overtly favouring one side or the other. For example, when British and Russian diplomats offered to act as go-betweens to help resolve the Salar revolt, Kabir refused, fearful that this assistance would simply mean another extension of foreign influence into the country. As he himself wrote, quote, We do not want Khorasan to become a second Egypt, nor that the British should be given the possibility of interfering in any way in Persian affairs. End quote. Similarly, Kabir recruited from the neutral nations of France, Italy, Switzerland and Austria when he needed officers and military instructors for the army and the Dar al-Fanun. In stark contrast to his treatment of the Babis, Kabir generally adopted a tolerant and enlightened approach to the country's established religious minorities. This may have been partly driven by foreign policy considerations. Kabir was familiar with how external powers had used the protection of religious minorities in Ottoman Turkey as an excuse to interfere in domestic affairs, and he didn't want such intrusions to be repeated in Iran. The vizier established close relations with the Zoroastrians of Yazd, personally intervening to ensure that they weren't abused by the local authorities, and did the same for the Sabateans of Shustar. Meanwhile, the tax injections enjoyed by the Shia Uluma were extended to Christian clergy, and in a decisive break with tradition, Armenian and Assyrian Christians were recruited into the army in their own regiments. Kabir's goal of strengthening the state inevitably brought him into contact with the ulama. The premier sought to reclaim areas of dominion for the secular state which had long been taken over by the clergy, especially in the legal arena. His goal was to extend the domains of secular law while restricting that of the Sharia. For example, the premier clamped down on the custom of Bast, essentially the Muslim equivalent of the medieval European practice of sanctuary. Holy sites would no longer be a place of refuge for political exiles, who would be answerable only to the justice of the state. Clerical judges were expected to conform to the same standards that Kabir set for secular civil servants and punished if they didn't. Hamid Algar, for example, cites the example of one Tehrani mullah who offered to settle a legal dispute in the favour of one of Amir Kabir's servants, with the unspoken expectation that he would be rewarded for his partiality. Instead, the shot cleric found himself exiled from Tehran by a furious Kabir. Kabir's policies extended beyond the state and the army. As the state finances were pulled back from the brink, the premier invested in infrastructure and the economy. New ganats, bazaars and squares were constructed. Small factories were established with financial support from the government. Iranian craftsmen were sent abroad so that they could return with new skills to teach their countrymen. New crops, like American cotton and sugarcane, were introduced to diversify the agricultural economy. Kabir also attempted to introduce modern public health measures, like inoculations against smallpox, but encountered only limited success in the face of public distrust and the influence of practitioners of traditional Persian medicine. The great tragedy of Amir Kabir was that his programme of reform had scarcely begun when he found himself isolated, dismissed and then executed 
by the very Shah whom he had helped carry to power. How did the Premier go from absolute power to the political wilderness and then to the grave in less than a year? To answer this question, we should start by looking at the vizier's opponents. Kabir's main enemies were to be found among the Gajar aristocracy and the hereditary bureaucratic elite. If you'll recall from previous episodes, these elites spent several years isolated from power by the previous premier Agassi. After the death of Muhammad Shah in 1848, they had enjoyed a temporary period of collective oligarchic rule under the informal leadership of Madhulya, the Shah's mother, only to find themselves isolated once again when Nasser al-Din invested more power in Kabir than his father had in Agassi. Three years of Kabir's rule had failed to endear him to the elite. The stringent austerity measures he had enacted to solve the financial crisis had seen many of the country's leading families lose pensions, stipends and other sources of income, while Kabir's efforts to reign in corruption were seen by the elites as assault on the patronage that they were legitimately entitled to. The fact that Kabir was a commoner, the upstart son of a Farahani cook, only served to increase their resentment. Amir Kabir's main weakness was that he lacked an independent power base of his own. His support among the army of Azerbaijan had gradually eroded since receiving the premiership, due in no small part to his brother, a martinet figure despised by the soldiery. Additionally, his refusal to engage in corruption prevented him from establishing a patronage network on which he could draw for support. Because of all this, Kabir was almost entirely reliant on the Shah for his political survival. As long as Nasser al-Din continued to support him, his power was secure. Any change in this relationship, though, was potentially fatal. And unfortunately for Kabir, his relationship with the monarch was about to change very dramatically. The justification for Kabir's almost total control of government was that he was acting as a mentor and quasi-regent for the Shah. Nasr al-Din, upon his coronation, was a teenager who had only a few months of administrative experience as governor of Azerbaijan. The unspoken plan was that Kabir would share more power with the Shah as the latter gained more experience and responsibility. Especially while the country was facing military and financial crises, Kabir would be the senior partner in this ruling diarchy, but it was widely expected that his role would dilute over time. Kabir seems to have been genuinely sincere about this overall plan. For the vizier, expanding and consolidating the power of the state was everything, and for Kabir, the Shah was the state. In his letters to Nasser al-Din, we often see Kabir chiding his monarch for spending too much time on his favourite hobbies, women and hunting, and neglecting his duties as Shah. The correspondence all suggests that Kabir genuinely desired to see Nasser al-Din exercise his duties as sovereign, and he was disappointed when the Shah failed to do so. There was, however, an inevitable contradiction between a more active and effective Shah and the monopoly of power exercised by Kabir. By 1851, 
Nasser al-Din was no longer the awkward and inexperienced teenager that had arrived in Tehran three years earlier, and he was beginning to chafe under the influence of Amir Kabir. Kabir's successes ironically served to make him less essential to the Shah and the state. The defeat of the Babis and the end of the Salah revolts meant a return to some form of stability in Iran. In 1848, it must have seemed that only an energetic, experienced and uncompromising like Kabir could be trusted with power. But Iran in 1851 was no longer in immediate danger of collapse, and Kabir no longer seemed irreplaceable. As the country returned to something like normality, an alliance against Amir Kabir began to emerge. The most prominent figure within this alliance was the Shah's mother, Madhulya. Initially isolated from power by Kabir, she had spent the previous three years working her way back into her son's confidences while maintaining her role as a spokesperson for the aggrieved nobility. The other key mover was a devious up-and-coming functionary within the Gajar court. Mirza Al-Khan Nuri was born in 1807 into one of the leading administrative families of Mazandaran, a lineage who had held positions of influence within the province since the mid-18th century. A charming, affable courtier who navigated the Machiavellian politics of the Gajar aristocracy with ease, Nuri had become one of the leading statesmen of Iran by the mid-1840s, and complemented his own support base with the backing of the British legation in Tehran. Nuri's ambitions, however, had once nearly proven his downfall. In 1845, Muhammad Shah became ill, and seeking to advance his career, Nuri had made contact with Madhulya with the aim of assisting her to ensure the then-adolescent Nasr al-Din would take the throne. It was a rare lapse of judgment on the part of the courtier. Muhammad Shah recovered, and a furious Agassi, Bastina Dode, and exiled the unfortunate Nuri. The short-term consequences of this plot were disastrous for the Mazandarani aristocrat, but the goodwill he established with Mahadulya would pay dividends in the long term. After the death of Muhammad Shah and the fall of Agassi, Nuri returned to Tehran, where he was able to leverage Madhulya's support to have himself appointed army secretary, making him Amir Kabir's second-in-command. Kabir wisely distrusted his supposed lieutenant and did everything in his power to limit Nuri's influence in government. However, as Madhulya's influence increased, the Gajar aristocracy began to regard Nuri as a potential replacement for Kabir, and the Mazandarani courtier became a key part of the emerging anti-Kabir opposition. The threats posed to Kabir by this emerging alliance were very real, but they were a dead letter as long as the vizier could keep the king on side. Unfortunately, throughout 1851, relations between the two were deteriorating. A major rupture occurred during the summer of 1851, in an incident centred on the Shah's half-brother, Abbas Mirza. The Shah and his mother had a fractious relationship, but one thing that bound them together 
was their mutual hatred for Abbas Mirza and his mother Khadija. Mad Ulya never forgave Khadija for usurping her prominence as Muhammad Shah's chief wife, and this hatred extended to Khadija's son. For Nasser al-Din, the favouritism his father had shown to Abbas Mirza had left deep psychological scars, especially considering how much it contrasted to the late Shah's neglectful indifference towards the heir to the throne. Nasser al-Din loathed his younger brother, and he harboured paranoid fantasies that the younger boy might attempt to usurp the throne, fears with little basis in reality. Amir Kabir, therefore, badly miscalculated when he invited Khadija and her son to be a part of the Shah's retinue during a royal visit to Esfahan. Mad protested, incensed at Khadija's presence, but Kabir foolishly dismissed her and the Shah's misgivings. The incident brought the Shah and his mother closer together while undermining the monarch's relationship with Amir Kabir. Desperate to get rid of his nemesis, the Shah appointed Abbas Mirza as governor of Qom, an entirely nominal position that was, in reality, a form of internal exile that would see the Shah's half-brother removed from the court and Tehrani politics. As soon as the premier heard of Mirza's exile to Qom, he reversed the decision and sent Mirza and Khadija to Tehran, before the Shah reversed the reversal and confirmed his half-brother's appointment. It was a fatal lapse of judgement on the part of Amir Kabir. The dispute over Abbas Mirza marked a fatal point of rupture in the previously tranquil relationship between the Shah and his minister. The loss of royal support also strengthened the hands of Kabir's opponents, who now had the ear of the king. On their advice, in November 1851, Nasr al-Din Shah dismissed Kabir from his post as army chief and appointed Nuri in his place. Not long afterwards, Kabir was stripped of his other responsibilities. Out of power, Kabir was in an unenviable position. He had lost all his allies, his control of both the army and the civilian administration, and he was no longer able to communicate directly with the Shah. Nuri, his replacement, wanted to depose Premier out of the way as soon as possible, offering Kabir several governorships away from the capital. Kabir refused each of these offers. He suspected Nuri of trying to get him out of Tehran, where cold-blooded political execution could draw the disapproval of the British and the Russians. Kabir had little choice but to make contact with Justin Scheel, the Irish-born head of the British legation in Tehran, and ask for protection from the wrath of his enemies. The British offered Kabir a carefully worded guarantee of diplomatic protection, which would see him safely spirited off to Kashan to take up a minor governorship. He was on the verge of accepting this offer when, out of nowhere, Dmitry Dolgoruki, the Russian minister in Tehran, arrived at Kabir's residence with the entire staff of the Russian legation and a Cossack guard of honour. Shields' offer of protection had been a sort of gentleman's agreement, not made in writing and was only as good as Shields' word. Eager to outdo his British rivals and secure a potentially useful ally, Dolgoruki 
offered Kabir full and unconditional protection without the requirement to go into semi-exile in Kashan. Not inclined to look a gift horse in the mouth and receiving the impression that he was getting the same sort of diplomatic immunity extended to the staff of the Russian legation, Kabir snubbed the British and instead accepted the Russian offer. The Shah was enraged. Dolgoruki's theatrical use of Cossack guards and the extension of protection without any consultation with the Shah hardened the Shah's attitude towards Kabir and his new Russian defenders. Nuri later claimed that, quote, His Majesty was so infuriated that he intended on that very moment to put an end to the whole affair by ordering Mirza Taki Khan's capital punishment. End quote. Rebuked by his superiors, Dolgoruki realised that he had overstepped his mark. He removed the Cossack guards surrounding Kabir's residence. In stark contrast to his earlier display of grandiose chivalry, Dolgoruki failed to lift a finger when Kabir was arrested by royal gulams. Kabir's position had already deteriorated. He had isolated the British by his acceptance of the Russian offer of protection, an offer that the Russians had almost immediately failed to uphold. In so doing, he'd infuriated an already apoplectic Shah. The day after his arrest, in November 1851, Kabir lost the remainder of his titles. He left Tehran not as a governor under British protection, but as a politically outmaneuvered exile, defenceless against the wrath of his monarch. The only person who still stood by Kabir was his wife, the Shah's sister, Malik Zada, who remained loyal to her husband until the very end. One witness to the fall of Amir Kabir was Justin Shield's wife, the pioneering travel writer, Mary Shield. Quote, The fallen vizier, Mirza Taki Khan, the poor Amir, made his downfall with resignation and composure, though with sadness, for he knew the fate of a Persian minister whose overthrow is followed by imprisonment. He made a false move and forfeited his life. It was now resolved to send him to Kashan. His wife, the Shah's sister, a young woman of 18, resolved to accompany her husband, in spite of the protestations of her brother and her mother. Conjugal affection does exist in Persia after all. A few days afterwards, as we were driving outside the walls of the town, I unexpectedly approached within a few yards of a party travelling towards Esfahan. It was the emir and the princess. They were both in a carriage, surrounded by guards. It seemed to me like a funeral procession, and I have seldom beheld a more melancholy sight. I longed to open the carefully enclosed carriage to take the doomed emir and his poor young wife with their two infant children into our carriage and to drive off with them to the mission house. End quote. A few weeks later, Mad Olya convinced her son to take the final step. On the 10th of January 1852, Amir Kabir was quietly strangled to death in the Finn Garden of Kashan. With the death of Amir Kabir, Iran lost one of its few effective statesmen 
of the 19th century. And his legacy of reform, what Kabir himself referred to as his orderly scheme, began to unravel under the leadership of his former Lieutenant Nuri. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use. If you want to get in touch, our email address is historyofmoderniranpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow on Twitter at modern underscore Iran. Until next time, goodbye, slán, chodáfes. <laughs> <laughs>